I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this episode of The Trade Guys, we talk about export controls, emerging technology, and the geopolitics of trade. We also discuss markups on the Hill, including trade adjustment assistance, and take stock of the Biden administration's trade policy. Stay tuned for all that and more on this episode of The Trade Guys. All right, welcome. Hope you both are doing well today. A little bit rainy in Washington. Let's get started with some new news happening in the export control world. I'd like to remind our listeners that Bill is the guy to discuss export controls. He formerly served as Undersecretary of Commerce for Export Administration, now BIS. This week, BIS said that they do not intend to issue a definitive list of emerging technologies subject to export controls. Some people on the Hill think that this goes against ECRA, which is the Export Control Reform Act passed in 2018. Bill, would you like to explain ECRA and what this new statement from BIS means? Well, it's welcome because it's the most definitive statement they've made, but it's an old it's an old argument that, frankly, I think is, has got very little to it. What ECRA said was that it directed the department to identify emerging and foundational technologies. The department has been slow on the foundational side, very slow on the foundational side. On the emerging side, which is probably a little bit more urgent because it relates to new things, I think they've been up to date, but it's, it's created this odd argument with some of the China hawks on the Hill staff, primarily a couple of members who were brought into it, uh, arguing that the department is supposed to actually produce a list of these items. And the department has not done that. And finally, this week, you know, what, nearly three years into it, got around to saying that they're not going to do it, uh, which they had not said before. But one could conclude that based on the fact that you know, since 2018, they hadn't done it. I think the reason is uh, is sound. First of all, the idea of emerging technology is, uh, this is a moving train. You know, you don't just do a list today and that's the end of it. It's what's going to be invented tomorrow and next week that you want to continue to keep track of. The reality is that the, the uh, previous statutes, the government has always had a duty to identify emerging technologies and decide what needs to be controlled uh, in the interest of our national security or foreign policy. So it was not a new obligation that was put on the government. I think what the statute effectively did was put a new emphasis on the need to do that and the need to do it in some coherent, more public way than the department had historically done it, uh, which is a good thing. But the idea of having to do it in a list, it seems to me, is is first the wrong approach because it, it implies that there will be a list and that's it, uh, when in fact, you know, it's a moving target. And second of all, it ignores what the department uh, has done anyway, which is better, which is to identify emerging technologies one by one with considerable specificity and then both add them to U.S. controls, but more important, add them to multilateral controls. And this issue came up again yesterday when uh, the acting undersecretary, Jeremy Pelter, 
testified uh, before uh, a group that I used to be part of, the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission. Uh, and he was uh, attacked by some of the commissioners for on this same issue, on the list issue, but also made the point that uh, he was adamant in defending the multilateral approach as the better way to do it. That is, it doesn't do any good for the United States to control the technology unilaterally if other people are making it. Because all that will happen then is that the adversary, most probably China, will get it from the other people that are making it. And the result of that is we don't attain our security objectives because China gets the stuff and our guys lose the market. So it's a lose-lose strategy throughout. The strategy that works is if you can get all the relevant producers on the same page uh, in terms of denying the technology uh, to, to adversaries. So I'm glad he said what he said. I'm glad he was forthright about it. And it's the right approach. All that said, the China hawks are not going to go away. This is political uh, as much as it is substantive. The Republicans are trying to make a case that the Democrats in general are soft on China. Uh, and that the president in particular is soft on China. Uh, and that means by definition, anything he does will be inadequate, which is why I think the immediate, the short-term outlook for getting together with the Chinese at anything is gloomy. And so this debate is going to continue, but I'm glad that uh, commerce is holding the line on, on how to go about the emerging issue. Yeah, look, regulating advanced technology is really important. It's a vital part of the export controls mission, but Ultimately, it comes down to goods or products that are being regulated. Technologies themselves, particularly technologies at the frontier of development, go in all different ways. You know, and they're very hard to predict. I mean, just take a look at uh, what used to be considered a digital telephone or, an, or a, a mobile telephone. 25 years ago, it was a, a Motorola flip phone, and uh, that was basically a telephone. You made telephone calls with it. That was its main purpose. And all of a sudden, the iPhone comes along, which is you know less than less than twenty years old. So if the iPhone were a person, you'd be too young to buy it, buy a beer. But uh, it's it's changed everything. And you know, is it is that still a telephone? Well, actually, no. It's it's a compact computer that's connected in multiple ways to multiple platforms. And that's just a that's a relatively straightforward example of how technology at the at the frontier has to be considered. And you have to let it evolve the way it does, and then try to identify as quickly as you can what, is, what are the areas that ought to be controlled, and then develop a consensus among all the producers, who are particularly your allies. So this is a, a tough process. It's always going to be subject to, to, uh, to tension, but that's the nature of frontier technology. I'd like to go back to one thing that Bill said, which is that China hawks are not going away. I think some people on the Hill are calling for a broader application of export controls and also more intense scrutiny of CFIUS, which is essentially foreign investment in the United States. Some have even gone so far as to suggest that we should screen outbound investment from the U.S., uh, do you think that that's a strategic and good idea? Or alternatively, do you think that some are conflating economic and security issues? Look, I think regulated outbound investment is a horrible idea, and it's, uh, it's always been soundly rejected for whatever the reason. I hope this is just one of these August stories that because there's so little news that somebody like Bob Casey or Senator Casey, who has a fringe position on the matter, can get, uh, get ink spilled on his behalf. So 
But it's, I, it's for reasons we've discussed before, it's a terrible idea. Rant coming on here, fair warning. I agree with Scott, but I also am convinced it's not going away. I think the administration is going to buy it, number one. Uh, and number two, Senator Casey's certainly not going away. He's a member of the Finance Committee, so yeah, he actually has, some, has a role in policy. Well, he tried to get it into the Senate China bill uh, and, uh, and failed for uh, different stories about why that happened. I think there was nervousness about the substance, but there were also procedural blockades that he couldn't overcome. But uh, I think it will come back. It may come back on the defense authorization. That's a common place for people to look at these things. And, or he may try to Tucking it into the reconciliation bill would be hard because it's not really a budget item, but it, it may come back when the uh, Senate and the House take up the, the, the China bill. It's a resoundingly bad idea. And the thing to remember about it is that the Congress considered it in 2018. It was on the table then, and they decided not to do it. Uh, and the Trump administration, uh, of all people, decided not to do it as well. Went along with, with the, the, the Hill consensus. And the view was that the issue was not really about controlling money. The issue is about controlling technology. That's what we don't want the Chinese to have. They already have money. And if they get more money, maybe that's not a good thing. But, you know, it, it's they're not short of money. What they are short of is critical technology. And that's what we want to keep control over. But we have a system to do that. It's the export control system that we've just been talking about. That's the way we control technology. And the Congress in 2018 decided, rather than reinvent the wheel with a new separate procedure that dealt with outbound investment and sort of a parallel to CFIUS and something that would overlap completely with the export control system, let's just go with what we've got and get it into 21st century shape, which is what ECRA did. So this is a classic case, I think, of it ain't broke. But Senator Casey persists in trying to fix it. And there are signs the administration buys that. So I would not be surprised to see an administration proposal that looks to something like some version of what Casey has been selling. This week, the Europeans and Americans said that they will meet for the first time in the U.S. Trade and Technology Council uh, in Pittsburgh uh, at the end of the month, Commerce Secretary Raimondo said that semiconductors will probably be a major topic of the upcoming summit. She said that it's important that the semiconductor supplies come from secure democratic soil. What does that mean? And, and how can the Europeans and U.S. work together on building more uh, resilient semiconductor supply chains? Well, you know, the new word that she inserted there was democracies. You know, secure sources and democracies are not a totally overlapping set. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm a little worried that we're starting to add sort of uh, a whole bunch of extra uh, values, if you will, on top of uh, what should be fairly dispassionate policy thinking about, you know, what are secure sources of supply and what do we uh, count on? And you get in the, in the way of other objectives. You know, one of our objectives uh, is to promote economic development in C Central America uh, which, among other things, we anticipate will uh, reduce some of the immigration pressures that we're, we're going through. Well, are those countries democracies? I think you could have a debate about some of them. But which policy do you want to pursue? Do you want to develop supply chains there? We're looking at this, that question, for example, in pharmaceuticals. Do you want to develop pharmaceutical supply chains that encompass some Central American companies in order to achieve our our immigration and economic development objectives, or do you want to insist that 
the only governments we're going to deal with are democracies, however it is that we define that. I'm nervous about that. I'm glad the conference is in Pittsburgh, tribute to a great city that's uh, really reinvented itself as a non-Silicon Valley high-tech center. They deserve the recognition. It's interesting that Secretary Armando's uh, description of, of the agenda is a little bit different from the conversations we've been having with Europeans because she wants to talk about chips. I think that's fine. She also wants to talk about privacy and privacy shield, which has been an ongoing set of discussions. The Europeans seem to want to discuss discuss areas where there are not a lot of existing rules and procedures right now, uh, which is kind of a, a less ambitious approach. We've already in previous sessions talked at great length about Airbus, Boeing, Steel, chickens, my personal favorite, long-standing grievances that appear not to be topics for the Pittsburgh meeting. I mean, I can understand why chickens isn't they're not exactly high tech, but you know, some of this other stuff, it'd be nice to see if we could find ways to get it off the table, but the approach seems to be more, let's get into new areas where we have not previously developed hardline firm positions. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be interesting to see what comes out of the semiconductor conversation because one democracy that's pretty advanced in semiconductor production is the United States. Well, we're a constitutional republic, but we'll set that aside. <laughs> but, you know, we qualify for that. But there, there aren't a lot of leading edge integrated circuits being produced in Europe. There are some, okay, largely U.S. investors, uh, if I understand the market correctly. Uh, but much of the new investment in Europe is geared toward their own automotive industry uh, and some of the some of the supply outages, which which is not sort of the the the, uh, the frontier uh, as we talked before on uh, of technology. A lot of the, the frontier uh, technology is being developed in places like Taiwan and Japan. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what comes out of this conversation. And as for the whole uh, sort of U.S. Europe high level dialogue on technology, I'm going to watch carefully who shows up for the third meeting. Everybody will come to the first one, but keep in mind you have the Secretary of State, the United States Trade Representative, and the United States Secretary of Commerce, and their their counterparts supposed to show up at this meeting. Secretary Blinken's got a few things going on these days, last I checked. And uh, uh, once the principals stop attending, these, these dialogues become less and less productive. You wind up falling back on sort of experienced, experienced but less senior officials who have been dealing with these problems for years and haven't found solutions. So worth watching, but uh, I'm call, calling me skeptical. I agree with that. These things have uh, a long history of crashing and burning, or rather, uh, in fairness, I think Scott's uh, has a better metaphor is it's sort of like sand leaking out of the bag. They don't exactly crash and burn. They gradually fade away into irrelevance as all the important people stop attending. Uh, and they end up accomplishing very little. They start always with high hopes, and this one has too, and high hopes are good. I have high hopes. Yeah, well, good for Pittsburgh too. Uh, Pittsburgh has once a place of steel and glass and, and heavy industry is now at the leading edge of medical technology and uh, many other high-tech areas, and it's uh, still livable and has a re rejuvenated downtown. It's a fascinating place to visit. It's, it's not like what you think it used to be. Ground beef patties, cheese, onions, and French fries, all in a single sandwich. Yes, Pramani Brothers has got to be one of the high-tech establishments that gets, uh, gets some attention from the visitors. All right, let's turn now to what's happening on the Hill. 
a lot of committees are marking up various legislative agenda items this week, including chips, semiconductors. However, one bill that is also getting marked up includes $7 billion for trade adjustment assistance. Uh, This is something that Blumenauer introduced earlier in the year. Could you remind our listeners what adjustment assistance does, who it helps? Um, I think the latest stats that we have are that there are currently just under 24,000 people enrolled in the program. And so one question is whether TAA is still relevant. Glad you asked that. Uh, As it happens, uh, the CSIS Commission on Affirming American Leadership actually recommended that uh, it be merged into an expanded uh, UI, Unemployment Insurance Program, that uh, we should treat all unemployed workers the same, and that the rationale for treating one group of workers differently from others had, had was long expired. But that, in fact, was the genesis of the program. It began in the 60s, uh, and it was when President Kennedy was launching a trade negotiating round, and he wanted to get labor support for trade negotiations, for trade liberalization, and uh, felt that uh, one way to do it, and it, it worked at the time, was to tell labor, if, if there are going to be uh, victims from trade liberalization, we'll have a program that will help them adjust to the new economic circumstances and provide uh, benefits while they can find new jobs. And that was the, the genesis of the program. And it evolved over time into effectively kind of a a quid pro quo in which the Congress felt that we had to do this if we're going to obtain uh, or maintain labor support for trade negotiations. That had declining utility over the years because for the last 20 years, it didn't, at least, it didn't persuade labor to support trade agreements. Uh, And so the the fundamental idea of the bargain uh, was broken. But the rationale, I think, was a compelling one. I think Scott will probably have something to say about this. I mean, the reality of trade is that, that at, a, at a macro level, it, it produces net benefits. But uh, at a micro level, it produces winners and losers. And uh, the question for government policy is, what do you want to do about the people that are lost, the people who lost their jobs to, uh, effectively to imports? And so the program, uh, which affects both workers and individual firms, mostly small businesses, also uh, this, would, this particular bill will restore it for farmers or expand it for farmers and add in a community college element, which I think is new, and a community element, which existed before and then disappeared and is coming back. How do you help communities, workers, and firms who've been impacted by trade reconstruct and revitalize? It does a lot of good work. It provides retraining benefits. It provides uh, job search alternatives. Uh, It provides a way to maintain healthcare benefits while you're doing all of this. Uh, And I think it's, uh, people argue about its effectiveness. Uh, I'm in the group that thinks it's been more effective than people think, but it does affect a fairly small universe of people. I think this bill will expand the universe. The seven billion is one billion a year for seven years. It's not seven billion this year. Uh, but that will allow, I think, a significant uh, expansion. And I hope that uh, workers that have lost their jobs because of trade will take advantage of it. Yeah, look, I, th- I don't think there's any objection to reauthorizing trade adjustment assistance, certainly not in the private sector or the business community. Uh, we've The business community generally has supported uh, TAA, but TAA has been an underachieving program. You can see it in the current level of benefits being applied for. And so 
let's not just continue to underachieve. You know, some of that back, you know, a decade or two ago, there was an intention to keep it small, to keep the jurisdiction within ways and means and finance. And that, that was kind of inside baseball. Uh, but what I agree with Bill in terms of the work that we did on our commission, which benefited greatly from the thinking of a former labor secretary, the late Bill Brock, who was one of our three co-chairs. Senator Brock was a U.S. senator. He was a U.S. trade representative and also secretary of labor, had a, had a real feel for these issues. And he was quite passionate about doing more than about more for the issue of adjustment and the, the need for adjustment in a fast changing economy uh, than simply focused on trade. So if we're going to do it, let's do it and let's learn something. Let's learn what's not working and what is working with an eye toward doing more of what does work in these set of circumstances. Subcommittee Chairman Blumenauer is as good a guy to work on this as any. He's got uh, experience and passion. So we'll see what comes of it. The interesting thing about it is that um, normally it is coupled with an extension of trade promotion authority. They tend to go hand in hand as a way of, of getting basically the, uh, the left uh, Democrats of the left on board the trade promotion authority by giving them what is essentially, I think, viewed as a carrot. This time it's been decoupled from that because there's no effort right now to renew trade promotion authority. A mistake, in my view, that the administration will come to regret. But here we are, not on the table. But hopefully they can get this done because the program, the TAA program, uh, a substantial part of it expired June 30th. So benefits are, are, have been cut back. Uh, eligibility has been cut back. But not zero because some of the program is permanent. But we really need to get that started again because people are hurting. And I hope that uh, uh, this, is, uh, this will get through, that the... Uh, uh, not only the House, but the Senate will go along with it as well. Well, speaking of TPA and missed opportunities, uh, Senator Grassley this week had some impassioned comments for the administration uh, regarding their trade agenda or lack thereof. Uh, Secretary of Agriculture Vilsack said this week that first we need to shore up the domestic economy. This is a line that we've heard repeatedly. Uh, but he said that if we can get these spending bills through Congress, then the administration uh, might be more willing to start concluding uh, FTAs. You know, they're, they're saying these things often enough that you, it makes you think they actually believe what they're saying, uh, which is which is disappointing. All right. Because working on the domestic economy or the international economy is not an either or thing. You know, they're, they're the, the 20 percent of really successful uh, industrial or private sector workers in this country work for globally engaged companies. Global engaged companies do 75% of the private R&D. These companies do half the exports, and they're very active in the domestic market as well as the international market. Same thing goes in agriculture, which is Secretary Vilsack's portfolio right at the moment. Uh, a healthy farm economy has both exports and imports, and uh, as well as domestic consumption. So I, I just... I'm, I'm nervous. It, it seems to me like we lack the confidence to be able to say that, look, this is a global economy and American workers, farmers, and firms are world-class. We can compete with anybody and we ought to be doing it at home and abroad. Uh, so I don't get this either or thing. I think it's, I think it's, an, I think it's an error in concept and uh, will lead to underachievement. Yeah, but it was potentially it was a clever move by Vilsack because I, I think on the one side he was talking to the farmers and uh, trying to make them feel better, which is sort of his job. But I think he was also talking to the U.S. Trade Representative and 
Secretary of Commerce and, and, and the president and by saying, you know, look, first of all, there are, there, are other, there are people in this country for whom market access and trade is important and that, you know, you need to get on with developing policy. But he was also, I think, making a slightly more subtle point, which is that once this bill passes, the reconciliation bill and the infrastructure bill passes, then their excuse not to do trade is gone. You know, the excuse they've used since coming in has been, we're not going to do trade because our priority is the domestic economy. And I think people understand that, you know, dealing with COVID and dealing with the domestic economy is, is, is both important and not small. But Vilsack is reminding them, okay, uh, once this bill passes, uh, you know, we'll have done that. And uh, that means you don't have the excuse anymore that, uh, well, we can't do trade because we're working on the domestic economy. And I hope what that will prompt is uh, some realization at, at USTR in particular that it's time to get to get moving on these things. You know, all the conversation has been uh, about sort of labor enforcement, USMCA primarily, and and climate. You know, when you talk to the the left wing, and I do occasionally, that's why they're interested in trade agreements uh, for climate mitigation purposes and for worker rights. And, and now forced labor, human rights issues, which is all good, but it kind of leaves aside the fact that there's other people who really would like to get more market access. You know, we got farmers who want to sell more stuff and we've got uh, service providers that want to provide their services in foreign countries. Uh, and we've got manufacturers who realize that, you know, 95% of the world's consumers are outside the United States. So uh, all of that's, you know, that's traditional in trade agreements. All of that's been kind of pushed into the background. Hopefully what Vilsack has said will help bring it out into the foreground and remind the administration that uh, the day is coming fairly soon when they're going to have to get busy on this, whether they want to or not. Well, in Washington, you can't just do one thing at a time. That's my only concern and potential uh, uh, somewhat cynical interpretation of, of uh, Secretary Vilsack. Hey, just give us the stuff we want like these big big spending bills, and then we'll work on your stuff. Well, Washington is not a single track operation. And uh, if you try to approach it that way, we'll do our stuff and then we'll get to your stuff, tends not to work. The, the cycle is too fast. It requires action on too many fronts. So we mean we should be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. If you can't, uh, you're in the wrong role. So there was a great story when I was working for members of the Senate Finance Committee, and Russell Long was the chairman. Uh, senators would frequently bring up, you know, sort of new ideas they wanted to get in and the tax area. And uh, and Long was, Long's response would usually be, that's a wonderful idea, Senator. We'll do that in the second tax bill. The second tax bill never happened. You know, November would roll around and they would adjourn and then it would all be put off in the next year where the same scenario would play again. Yes, I'll get to that right after my break. <laughs> Let's turn now to another hot topic around town, which is Buy American. There was some movement this week in that there is a new Buy American provision added to the defense bill. Uh, that would increase a domestic procurement thresholds from 55% now to what would amount to 75% by the end of the decade. Um, is this a good thing? Uh, will this create a boon in manufacturing uh, on U.S. soil? In all my years working with politicians, the two things I've never gotten across are, number one, opportunity cost, the fact that doing one thing can prevent you from doing something else, 
but more importantly, diminishing returns. And it appears to me, and this is work that Bill's done and published on, um, and the Scholl Chair has done a lot of work on it. We do a lot of Buy America now and doing more. It has reached the point of diminishing returns. It will make things more expensive, particularly in the defense space. A lot of the foreign defense equipment contracts or defense production contracts are very carefully negotiated with strategic allies. We also need an industrial base at those strategic allies. So uh, F-35 fighter pr production uh, is a good example of where it is, it is distributed among our allies for the specific purpose of ensuring the defense industrial base uh, exists outside the United States. So now this is an idea that's come, that's come up before, it's been rejected before, uh, but uh, Bill, you may have a better sense of whether the politics are any better this year. Well, I don't entirely understand the provision because I think he may be referring to the content, the content percentages, which tracks exactly uh, what uh, Biden has proposed in, in uh, his uh, report on Buy America that came out in July. I mean, it, it, quantitatively, I think 96% of domestic procurement is already technically domestic. The issue really is is not whether that deemed to be domestic based on a content percentage that has been 55%. And if you bump it up to 60 or 75 or whatever, then you increase demands for more American content. I think we've said before that the government uh, annually procures about what's got $350 billion worth of goods uh, and about the same amount of services. Uh, and it's a $22 trillion economy. This is not necessarily a mover uh, of, of, you know, major economic forces in, in the United States. The federal government procurement, government procurement policy is not going to move the entire manufacturing base of the U.S. It, sim it simply isn't, isn't big enough. More relevant, a lot, if not most of that procurement uh, is defense and defense related, particularly the big ticket items, the F-35 being the classic. And as Scott said, those are negotiated agreements with our allies. Giving them a share of the production is what enables us to sell them the, sell them the weapon systems and the planes to begin with. And it's what, make, it, it's what makes NATO effective because it makes it interoperable. You know, you don't want the French, the Germans, the British, the Italians, and the Americans all to be flying different aircraft that can't communicate with each other. That, by the way, was a problem in in the Balkans uh, in the 90s, where you had uh, aircraft that literally uh, in this flying in the same uh, region over Kosovo and areas there that that literally uh, Allied aircraft that could not communicate with each other because they were not interoperable. You, that's the last thing you want in NATO. You want everybody on the same page and the same technology, but that means you know your allies are going to say that's fine. We want to share the production, which makes perfect sense. Uh, what uh, in this particular amendment is going to do is get directly in the way of that. And I think it ends up going away because it, it's on these things get debated on in the Armed Services Committee. And if the Armed Services members know very well that uh, how this is going to impact our ability to defend ourselves and how it's going to impact NATO. So my suspicion, suspicion is it's not going to make it all the way to the finish line. Great. I think that concludes this week's Trade Guys. Thank you all for tuning in and listening. Thanks, Bill and Scott, for your remarks. I think we managed to limit it to one rant only. I have several in reserve, but we'll also uh, give you a heads up. Uh, first of all, we're back to weekly podcasts. 
So those of you that have missed us every other week, we're back. Second, in two weeks' time, we have a special treat. Uh, we will have the Irish ambassador, Daniel Mohal, uh, visiting with us, talking about Ireland, uh, talking about uh, digital services tax, talking about Brexit, talking about the EU, and uh, getting us ready for a, what will be for CSIS anyway, a significant uh, public event uh, on September 27th, when the uh, former and uh, future Irish Prime Minister, Leo Varadkar, uh, will be at CSIS to give us a talk about other things about those same issues. So uh, stay tuned. Uh, next week will be our usual trade guys, but two weeks we'll have Ambassador Mohal to talk with. Thanks a lot. Thanks. To our listeners, if you have a question for the trade guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the trade guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.